Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this nice little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Jewel Roper. Now, if you know Jewel Roper, like I know Jewel Roper, she is the wonderful lady that I have random, awesome conversations with in parking lots on the island. <laughs> and I wanted to get to know more about Jewel, so I asked her to do an interview with me, and she graciously said yes. And today, you're going to get to hear a whole bunch about Jewel that you probably didn't know before. Stories like her building a cabin on the island, $500 at a time. We're going to get to hear about her visit to Oroville, India that she took recently. We'll get to hear about her attending Simon Fraser University in 1969. We're also going to get to hear about her 30 years of work that she did in recreation therapy. That's the introduction. Now it's time for my interview with Jewel Roper. Good evening, Jewel. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Right on. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm just getting used to the name Jewel. So I've always been Julie Roper. And so when you say Jewel, it delights me. My I, new name. I've only known you as Julie up until recently as well, too. Oh, okay, so it's, it's new for both of us. <laughs> why, why did you switch? Oh, heavens. I did it sort of for fun, but also it was sort of significant. So there's a group of people I gather with called the West Coast Evolutionaries. And we're a sangha. We're a group of folks that have studied spirituality and psychology and philosophy for a long time. So we meet um, at Swanwick a couple times a year without a teacher, and we're peer-led, and we call ourselves the West Coast Evolutionaries. Anyway, on a whim, because one other person had changed her name by dropping a letter. And I thought, oh, this will be so fun. It was very quick. I'll just drop the ego. Because, you know, the ego is many times just the small I. So I dropped the small I. And I moved from Julie to Jewel, because it's J-U-L-E. So it was just fun, as if anyone could possibly get rid of an ego, even if they wanted to, by dropping the small I. But that's often what it's referred to. Well, you might be onto something. Maybe maybe you'll be the first to be able to drop the ego, which is by <laughs> dropping a letter. I didn't realize there was so much intention behind that move. Okay. Uh, but mostly it was for fun. And I'll say one more thing about my name. People in my past that have loved me dearly, just a handful, have often called me Jewel. Friends and lovers and family. And so when someone says it to me now, it's totally different. And it just warms my heart because in my growing up, the people that called me Jewel loved me. It was, it's, so when you call me that, I always feel kind of happy. Nice. Well, that's lovely. <laughs> Warms your heart. Okay. Well, I'll try to warm your heart a few more times tonight, dear Jewel. <laughs> but uh, all right. Well, thank you for sharing. And, and uh, we got off track right away because we didn't get to the traditional first question. So the traditional now second question of, uh, of this podcast is uh, what brought you to Pender Island? All right. 
You know, and at the risk of getting off track again, I'm going to say that I found out that I fell in love with islands. But I didn't find that out on Pender Island. I found that out on northern part of Vancouver Island, where I went my early, early 20s, Port Hardy, Port Alice. And you have to know that I lived in a school bus, a school bus on Fort Rupert um, land, right on the water, high tide washed against the wheels of our bus that had skylights and bay windows and never was finished. We lived in it in an unfinished, beautiful state. And anyway, I fell in love with living on the ocean. And um, we'd turn on the headlights and watch the plankton at night in the uh, brimming lights that they would make. They would all flicker in the ocean and make all these dazzling colored light. So anyway, I fell in love with the ocean and I made another trip. My brother Chris reminded me of this. I went to Lopez Island with my friend Josie Beecher and she took us to this most beautiful spot and it was on a cliff overlooking, it was a park overlooking tons of water off Lopez Island, part of the American San Juans, and it just took my breath away, and we fell in love with it. And then about a week later, maybe it wasn't a week, a short time later, I got a call from my brother, Chris, and he said, guess what? I fell in love, and I fell in love with Pender Island, and I have bought 10 acres, and it's just like that land on Lopez so beautiful south-facing oceanfront, arbutus and moss and cliff. And so that's how I came to Pender Island. I followed my brother, Chris Roper. Chris Roper. <laughs> okay, so is, uh, is he an older brother or a younger brother? He's four years younger. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what was his first interaction with the island and what made him fall in love with it, do you think? Well, I, well, I think partly the beauty of it to begin with, then I think he got a pretty good deal on it. And uh, because there was some developers, actually, it was the beginning of the island trust forming, because they had already made Magic Lake into lots of small properties. And this was way down Pirates Road, just before Trincomalee. And Chris had one of those 10 acres, has one of those 10 acre south facing pieces. So it's spectacularly beautiful. And then he got to know the community, although he was working in Sydney in robotics, but he made friends here. We all hung out at the pub in the early days. We'd go there for the specials. You'd never miss the five ninety five Lou's home-cooked dinner. And that was before the pub was even built onto. Most people don't even know the pub was built onto, but it ended at where the fireplace is now at the first level. It didn't have the other level. It was oh, really? very little. And uh, we never missed dinner. We would, yeah, yeah, we lived there. And he met people that he really liked. And um, I don't know, he just loved it. But it was the beauty of the property to begin with, I think. Yeah. Okay. So younger brother, four years younger, moves to the islands, you follow him. And it seems to be a pretty classic story with Pender as well, too. I've noticed that a lot of people wind up coming here because they have a family connection to the yeah. place. But uh, so you followed him immediately after you bought the property or? Oh, no, I always lived and worked in Vancouver. 
Um, but he, he was in the North Sea, uh, diving actually. So he was hardly ever on the property in the first 20 years. So this was 40 years ago. I was 27. I'm almost 67. He was 24. So he was off working, but I was able to come almost every weekend because, and more than that, I usually could come three, four months a year because I had a lovely job that afforded me an opportunity to work at home a lot. And, um, it was great. So I came and I started building a cabin and, um, the joke was Chris had 10 acres and I walked, I drove to the end of the road where there was sort of a cul-de-sac and found out years later, it was a legal easement for the guy next door. And, uh, he was turned out not to make a big issue of it, which was very lovely because he could have driven right through, uh, where I built practically. And Rob's story came along and, he and I built a, a shed that I was going to sleep in. We didn't have a saw. We only had a hand saw. There was no power up there. And so we kept the lengths. It seemed easier. So the silly thing was over 12 feet high because that's how long the two by fours were. <laughs> and then it was just like a really small, you could hardly lie down on the whole bottom of it. So it wasn't more than eight by 10. Yeah, it was eight by 10, but by 12 or 13 tall. It was a bit odd looking. And what? then we started building my cabin, and that's a story. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm curious to find out more about that. But the, the first thing I want to ask is, so you were living in uh, Vancouver at the time, and you said you were working there. What uh, What were you doing in Vancouver? Uh, I had the best job on the planet. I've always been an educator. I've taught from kindergarten to fifth-year university, but I had the job of being an educator of recreation therapists people who laugh and play and know the value of leisure and play and want to work with people. And uh, it was a beautiful career. I did it for 30 years. Okay. Well, tell us more about that. So they encourage people to laugh and play, is it? Well, they use leisure and recreation to help people heal from no matter what. For example, the whole Paralympics. Um, that's how I met Tim Frick, by the way, who followed me to Pender Island. And Tim... Um, taught with me in therapeutic recreation for a while. He was mostly a coach. But I think of the Paralympics as an example where people are using, in that case, sport um, to heal, to feel better about themselves, to achieve things, to win, to, you know, challenge themselves. And then rec therapy works in mental health, it uses fine arts, it uses music, it uses crafts and painting and art to help people with mental illness, you know, with depression. And really, as it turns out, almost any of us can, you know, any fruit buddy on Pender Island uses therapeutic recreation. Um, you know, we go for a walk and we look at beauty and the scientists tell us that our immune system is strengthened. So there's tons of research of the value of doing what you love. Sure. Well, you said you did this for 30 years, and I, I just want to stick with this for a little bit because it obviously it was a huge part of your life. But can you give us any more details about maybe some some key experiences you had with that part of your life? There were so many. I mean, I was a pioneer, so I helped build a profession. I wrote the bachelor's degree mostly on Pender Island, most of the courses, because it was a window to put it through. I had a student that took a young man with a spinal cord injury and this most interesting machine into Nepal. 
and they climbed huge amounts of Everest. Like I can't, you know, the lower part of it. There were so many, like there's so many stories, I guess, about what my students did that helped people, the whole parasailing group, you know, people that are, you know, in wheelchairs, being able to sail their own boats. People, a young woman with depression who was suicidal, who learned how to swim and then decided if she could do that, she could go back to college and then on and on and on and her life changed. And I I was just in the right place at the right time. I don't even know anything about playing myself. Truthfully, I was, Jordan, my son, always said I was much too serious. So I taught them, of course, the counseling parts and the psychology part of what they were doing. The whole thing inspired me. And you said that you pioneered this because you said earlier that you uh, you wrote the bachelor's degree. Well, we had a diploma for many, many years, and we were the only one in Canada other than a small college in Alberta. And we kept trying to get the funding and the ministry support to have a degree. And finally, we Douglas College itself became degree granting and was able to offer seven degrees. So now there's a bachelor's degree in therapeutic rec. One of my students is a PhD now in therapeutic recreation, and she teaches at Dalhousie. So there you go. That's a significant thing I feel very good about. So we moved from a diploma, and there's now, we don't at Douglas, it only can offer baccalaureate degrees, but people have gone on to do their master's and PhD. And no one even knew what rec therapy was as a profession, Um 30 years ago, wasn't even a profession. So it's just an infant. It's like the beginning of nursing or OT or, and they work in corrections. I can tell you about people who are working in prisons and having people do things that they love. And it just gives them so many strengths that they can go on to heal them, heal and then go on to make their lives around work and family better. Interesting. So 30, 40 years ago, was the culture so obsessed with uh, working and accumulating wealth or just basically putting a roof over the top of the house or a roof over top of people's heads that the idea of play as an adult just seems so foreign and abstract? Or is that how it was? Well, actually, that's still a bit how it is. You know, um, you're probably learning more about rec therapy right now than you ever have. So it's still not as valued as it should be. You know, it's still developing. We still have a work ethic. But of course, it's shifting. I mean, there were times when people, you know, the history of how people with disabilities have been treated throughout the globe is very dismal, you know. So there's been huge changes in the last 50 years and in the last decade, you know, but we still, still people think, you know, work is more important than play. Sure, totally. I think play is more important than work. Yeah. We're, we're playing right now. You're ahead of your time. Though. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow, amazing. So you were living here on and off during that time. You were coming during the weekends a lot? or Yeah, during the weekends, and I was privileged. You know, I had good holidays. I had probably three months in the summer, and often weekends. I had an old car here. That's a story. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's hear it. What, what kind of car was it? <laughs> There's a Pontiac, yellow Pontiac, and they also called it an Acadian, a little yellow car. Oh, my goodness. I remember driving along one time, 
and it ran. I drove it across Canada three times. Whoa. I know. It cost me $4,000 brand new. Drove it across Canada three times. Anyway, I'm driving it on Pender Island once because it's a long road to where Chris's property is and where I built my cabin. And I had a skirt on and I hit a bump and it was in the dark and I was wet. And I went, oh my gosh, still running like a charm. And I look at it and there's a hole and it's gone right, you can see the ground right through where your feet are, at the brake and the uh, gas pedal. But Rob's story said, no problem. And he just hoisted it up a little bit and he welded a, a piece of metal right on the bottom so it didn't splash, water from mud puddles no longer splashed up into my car. Right on. It ran forever. My brother took pieces of it away to fix one of his girlfriend's vehicles. Yes. And that was that was the end of that was of its end. existence. All right, it, it carried on. It was basically it was a donor. It was <laughs> it was an organ donor, basically. That's true. So you mentioned Rob's story a couple of times. How did you meet Rob's story? Oh heavens! Probably just because he was helping out, and he helped me build the shed, and he was just there. And I never went to any of his parties. There, you'll have to interview someone else about that. They were definitely island famous. But I want to tell you about building my cabin. Sure. So I wasn't here all the time. So every time we had $500, we did something on the cabin. And it could only be 500 square feet. And um, Patrick Brownrigg was here building it for me. And he was also building a house for Gary Dudley. And he never really finished either of them. And Gary's was huge and mine was so little. Patrick worked for a little while and that all went well. It was all framed. But then after that... I had me and my friends helped out building the cabin, and we did almost everything wrong. So we had to take it out and redo it. And there came a point where I just couldn't do that. And I would say, like, we put window wooden windows in. We cleaned them and put old wooden windows in. They all leaked. One of the famous builders on Pender Island, Percy Melville, who built beautiful houses, came, took all the old wooden windows out and put in new ones. We did the drywall. We put it the wrong direction. Danny Martin came and re-drywalled it. Oh, there was so many. Kim Davis worked on the property. Kim, many people know who we've lost. He worked on the house. And the cabin took a long time to build. And it never got an occupancy permit until it was almost... 20 years old or 25 years old. It served us so well. And my son, Jordan, was little. He grew up in that cabin, kind of. And he's bonded to Pender Island big time. When he was there a month old at the cabin that we were always building, Chris used to have horseshoe pitch parties down on the cliffs. Five, seven years, sometimes 50 people would come. Anyway, that's where Jordan, at one month old, met his best friend, Morgan Dudley. No, Jordan was two months old at the pitch, and Morgan was one month old at the pitch. So he grew up in that cabin and kept making friends. And When did the cabin start feeling like home for you? You know, right from the very beginning. Like, once it was... It was, that's a really funny, that's me, you know, living in a school bus. I lived in a place at Simon Fraser called the Hovel. So the cabin, I can remember we put the, and we moved the wood stove. This is only five, 500 square feet, but we put the, the wood burning stove 
in two places. But I can remember the wood-burning stove being there, and we're sitting on piles of drywall, drinking red wine, always red wine, sitting in a pink building because it's all pink insulation with plastic. And we've just had a turkey dinner. There's a stove, but really no counters. And 10 people have come and it felt like home. And yet it still wasn't drywalled. Mm. I think it felt like home. Pender always felt like home. Like even when Chris bought the property first, you know, and when I built that shed, it kind of felt like home. I never really finished the cabin. Um, my brother bought me out maybe 14 years ago, 15 years ago. I think it was sort of finished, but he's he's really finishing it now. Okay. It started when I was 27. <laughs> Interesting. So are you pretty close to your brother? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> you followed him to an island. That's right. For That's sure. right. So we were, uh, we were talking earlier uh, before we started the interview, and you mentioned that you had just come back from India and I just wanted to touch on that for uh, a little bit, if you're if you're willing. How was your trip to India? Well, it was amazing, like everyone said. I had three parts to my trip, and uh, I was in the north, I was in the south. Someone came over and looked at my pictures the other day, and I could talk way too much. You know, India is the country of contrasts, for sure. But I want to mention Oroville. A-U-R-O-V-I-L-L-E. It's on the southeast of India. And I went there because of Pender Island. I went there. So I was in the north for two and a half weeks. And then I flew to Chennai and went to Oroville on the southeast coast. And I went there because of my friend Susan Tate and her brother, John Harper. So Susan Tate went there and lived there for 18 years. And I knew her when before she went to Oroville from my relationship on Pender and after she came back. And um, it's an intentional unity, peace community where people come from all over the world and live. Its vision was from Sri Aurobindo, and uh, he never lived um, to um, see it built. It's the same size as Pender Island, 2,600 people. I saw John there, who is Helen Harper's son, who lived on Pender, knew my brother Chris. He's lived there for 41 years. I met another woman that's connected to Pender there that's been there forever. And I was only there five days of my whole trip. I'm going back next year for sure. And... Most of the people I met there were from India or from Europe, mostly from because people are from all over the world. And it felt so familiar. It is actually part of Oroville is right on the water. I was sort of staying in the interior. It's quite, it's as big as Pender land-wise, same number of people. And I took water from Pender because they were having a water ceremony because they were celebrating their 50th anniversary when I was there. So 50 years old, John Harper from Pender's lived there 41 years, and he's helped design and build one of the wonders of the world that most people don't even know anything about. And I've been traveling tons since I retired. It's called the Matramandir, and it's this big globe 
to meditate in. It's huge. And it has 12 petals. Each of those are rooms. If you Google it, you can see it under Oroville. Each of the rooms are meditation rooms. Probably 20, 30 people could sit in each of the petals. And they're like peace, humility, love. They all have names and they have colors and flowers associated with them. But when you go into the Matrimadir, so imagine a big globe covered with gold in little tiny triangles of gold. They make hexagons kind of, and then they're, it's all covered. And you walk into this space. This is not telling you about India. I'm sorry. No, no, go for it. <laughs> and you walk into this beautiful circle and it was this big lotus full of white marble. And then you spiral up inside this white marble. And then you're asked to take off your shoes. And you start walking on white carpet until you get to the interior of this globe. And in it is this huge crystal, this other big, huge glass globe. And it's the most magical place in the world if you like to meditate and connect to something greater than just great. Sure. <laughs> well, I, I know from talking to you in the past that meditation is a big component of your life. And uh, that's interesting. So in terms of visiting the island, what was your, uh, your lasting impression of this experience? Because I've heard of places like this before, but uh, I've never visited them. And it's amazing that People have lived that long in these communities. Is there private property that exists there? Or? Oh, yeah. And it's not an island. It's on the water. So it's oh, on the me. southeast coast of India. Um, I don't know much about it. I think if you Googled Oroville, you would learn so much. I only had five days. Everyone I taught to had been there 8, 10, 15, 20 times. Like people seem to fall in love with it. It just made me feel so alive so connected, uh, so peaceful, so energized, awake. It was designed as a, a spiritual, unity, peace-oriented community. And it's just like any other community. as businesses and stores and restaurants and places people live. Oroville owns everything, their community, of which they're all members so I don't think you don't actually own your own house, but you live there for 40 years and you you renovate it and fix it and build it. So you do own it. So a whole different idea of um, materialism and exchange. You could use your credit card and money. I was glad in most of the restaurants, but they have um, a currency that's their own. Hmm. Yeah, and people get credits, and then they... It's an Oroville card. They have their it, own credit cards. Yeah, their own credit system wow. where you help me and, you know, and, and you work for, like, John Harper working on the Matramandir. So then he gets a, a salary, that, but it's not money, it's a credit, and then he uses that in the community to buy things and... I don't know much about it. It just felt wonderful to be there. Nice. And I was so grateful for Susan. To, I wouldn't have gone there if someone from Pender that I know hadn't introduced me to the whole concept. Sure. Well, I guess it's not necessarily the logistics that are super important, but I guess the uh, the feeling that is, and your feeling was one of uh, 
Immense joy being there, it sounds like. Yeah, and unity and that's and just connectedness. Yeah. Great. The people I met were um yeah, very bright and very interesting and very committed to creating a new world. All right. Nice. For some reason I want to ask you right now, what were you like as a child? What were you like when you were six years old? Oh, you're not going to like this, what? but the dark is as good as the light, okay. right? All right, yeah. So my father, who loved me beyond measure, left me when I was four, left my mother. He was going off to get some treatment, and I think addiction is a thing that probably runs in our family. He never arrived for treatment. He never appeared again. I've never seen him. Again, my mother's never seen him. So he left, and guess what I got? My brother. The very, So four years old, my mom's in the hospital having my brother. My father leaves, who loved us dearly. And I got a baby brother, and I lost this father. So I've done, no wonder I became a psychologist and... I've taught therapists my whole life. So I've I've been able to turn that into a lovely thing, but it's been a lifelong of, you know, we all have our challenges that we come into this world with, and that was mine. So at six years old, I've got to tell you, I made myself the grown-up in the family. And my mom was lovely, and she worked hard, and she never blamed me, never tried to worry me, never asked me. I'd, well, she probably did. But anyway, I was the adult in the family, according to me, until I went to Simon Fraser. So I sort of ran away at 17. And so I was a pretty grown-up child. And then I taught recreation therapy. And my students taught me to play. But I didn't, I, I played some as a child, but mostly I was grown-up. Wow. So you felt at uh a very young age that you had to be very responsible? Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. Wow. And was this in Vancouver that you were living? We were in northern BC, and actually that was my first love of water. Um, we, My grandfather had a cabin, and um, we went there every summer on a lake. That was beautiful. 13 miles from Terrace, Lakels Lake, near Kitimat. Um, do you mind if I ask another question about your father? Is that no. okay? Yeah. Okay. So at that time, you were... At a very young age, and then you have a younger brother come in. And so, was it like a maternal instinct that you had, or just something about just having to basically be there for your mom? Or what, what was it you were feeling at that age? Like, my mom was a good mother to both of us and to Chris. She actually stayed home till he was two, and I went to school at six. So, she went on social assistance for two years, which I thought was pretty cool. And then she worked every day, nine to six, our whole lives. I didn't feel really ma maternal toward him, no. Mom did a good job of mothering him, both of us. I just decided I was the, had to be the grown-up. And I, I think she did expect, I mean, she tells the story of coming home one day and I am, I made dinner from the time I don't cook anymore. I made dinner from the time I was 10 
pretty well every day. You know, I made dinner, um, you know, five days a week. And I get, she came home one day and Chris was like eight or something and giving me a, like being an eight year old. I don't even remember what he was doing. And I had my hands in the sink and I'm 13 and she comes in and I'm crying and I'm saying, I'm too young to be a mother. And it broke my mother's heart. So she's the one, I don't remember this, but she's the one that's often told that story. So no, we were both well-mothered by our mother. I just felt responsible. And we didn't have very much money, and I was responsible. And I, I think I didn't act out as a teenager because I didn't want to give her any more challenge than she already had. I, th- I was very practical. Yeah, I had one boyfriend that kept me out of trouble, and um, we were engaged when I left, but as soon as that I hit, I hit Simon Fraser University, it was 1969. The university was built in 65. I got there. We went on strike because they were firing seven political science faculty. We were Canada's Berkeley. It changed my life. Well, let's dig into that story. That sounds interesting. Okay. So 1969, Simon Fraser University, political science teachers are getting fired. Take it from there. Well, again, my memory, you're better to Google it and find out what really happened it was a wonderfully exciting time. We started the daycare. We started the peak newspaper. We, everything that started there was very radical, very free thinking. The women's center, the health center. We were feminists. We were angry. We were doing therapy. We were smoking marijuana. We didn't drink much. Red wine, some. It was very alive. I went in as a C student. Oh, that was the other funny thing. I went to SFU. I was the only two kids in my graduating class went to university. One went to Simon Fraser, me, and the other went to UBC. I was a C student in high school. The counselor told me I wasn't smart enough to go to university, no lie, and we had no money. And I went to Simon Fraser. And it was just lovely the time I was born. There were bursaries. I couldn't get a scholarship. But anyway, my first semesters were C's. My last semesters were A's, but it took me 10 years to get my degree too. So I'd lived in the school bus in the North Island that I talked about earlier in between. I was very slow getting my bachelor's degree, but it was fine. So how was that experience moving to Vancouver after living in Northern BC for the major part of your life? Well, it just, you can't believe the change. I mean, my cousin picked me up. He'd lived at, he was going to Simon Fraser he said, oh, I got to take you to this cool thing. I got to show you McDonald's. <laughs> and they sold eight. And their sign said, eight million served. And I went, oh, wow, eight million. It was one of my only trips to McDonald's, but I didn't feel, and eight million was so big. Can you imagine? Eight million being big. This is like not a big number mm-hmm. anymore. And I lived at Madge Hogarth House. And when I moved into Madge Hogarth House, we had a security guard at, this is the women's residence. We had a security guard at the end of my first semester when the students went on strike, the eight political science faculty were fired. We no longer had a security guard and guys were allowed in our room. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. All right. That was, uh, well, yeah, maybe you did. I don't know. <laughs> So you, uh, McDonald's, co-ed type situation going on there. Fun times. Yeah, and learning a lot. It was 
thinking outside the box. The courses were just one thing. It was the culture. I mean, it was the culture of Simon Fraser. We were Canada's Berkeley. And then when I went back years later, so I, I got most of my degree done, and then I started teaching. So I didn't actually finish my degree. I had to go back and do it. And then Simon Fraser, I must say, was very um, conservative compared to what it was in the 60s when I went back mid-70s or something. It had settled down to not be what I remembered. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, I'm trying to picture what the look of of the student population would have been in 69. So a lot of long hair, flowers and uh-huh. hair. Was it, is, is that okay, what really happened? You ask such good questions because it's so funny. So we're all into anti-establishment, break the rules, change things, end of capitalism. You know, we were playing with communism. Anyway, I remember being at a B-in. At, it was called a B-in. Why were they called B-ins? Someone that listens to this will know. And it was at Stanley Park. And tons of people from SFU were there. All the young people were there. It was 1969. We all were dressed the same. We were in these blue jeans. A few women were wearing skirts, but many were blue jeans. But we were basically in a uniform. And we recognized it when there were so many of us gathered in one place. So, I mean, we, there were the hippies, and but we were wearing blue jeans. We were wearing denim. Yeah. We weren't as individualistic as we thought we were becoming. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I, I heard recently somebody explaining that the different groups that exist in high schools, the different uh, social circles where you've got the jocks and then the goths and all these things, and that these categories have are very well established and... We think that we're being original, uh, moving into one of these previously established groups, and yet there's not much originality going on. And no. uh, what 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 is originality? And anyway, it's interesting. But it's interesting to hear you say that even at that time, that the recognition that that everybody kind of looked the same and was doing yeah, the same we thing. Did. Yeah. Let me tell you one little. Do you know the cartoon reboot? My son watched reboot as a kid. I don't think they're so. in a computer. Well, I was in the Simon Fraser computer with the fellow that was our friend and became actually the director of computing at SFU. But I was actually in the mainframe. It was this huge, huge room with all the metal of all the... We were inside a computer. That's how old I am. Wow. Okay, you've been inside a computer. And if you ever watch the cartoon reboot, those that cartoon character was inside the mainframe of a computer with all its, you know, little wires that when they touched, signals happened. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. Can, yeah, I wish I could draw a better picture. <laughs> no, I could draw uh, you a picture. That's sort of that's amazing, actually. <laughs> Just to bring it back to uh, Pender Island here, the next traditional question on the program I ask everybody is, who has given you help on Pender Island? Okay. Well, all those builders on my cabin and all my friends with that. But when I had my son Jordan, Yvonne McKenzie, because she was Morgan's mom, she was like a great support because I wasn't really connected to the community that much. I would come to my 10 acres and my cabin and um, I had Jordan as a little one 
And I was in retreat, like that's what I wanted. But Yvonne was so good at always including me, like she would know that this or that is happening. And she always invited me and uh, I really, I was really wonderful. She was sort of my link to the women on the island and, um, and you know, to other people. But otherwise I was in retreat, you know. Oh, and then people followed me to Pender Island and they've become good friends like Tim Frick. And Jerry Phillips, and Jerry's the, you know, the um, German shepherd person. And they came and camped on my property with Chris. And then they moved here, and they live on Magic Lake. And um, they're, they've always helped me out. You know, they've always connected me. They introduce me to people now all the time. It's very cool. So they've been a big help. One day, actually, Tim Frick is in this story, I now have bought Anne Mundy's house, and any old-timers know that. Fifteen years ago, Chris bought me out, and I have the hexagon in Hope Bay. And um, I have salt intrusion, actually, in my water, and so I need to have storage tanks. And um, I've actually solved that problem a bit. Anyway, one day I had come back from teaching, so I would be in Vancouver all, all the whole week, and I would come Friday nights. And so I was just pulling up. And one of the jobs that was happening was they were installing the water tank, a 1,300-gallon white kind of rectangular tank. And they were putting it underneath the lowest deck in the house because I wanted it hidden. Hardly fit there. It was not a practical place, but I wanted it hidden, right? So I just parked my car, and I heard this big crash. And then I heard Tim Frick yell, should have put a rope on it. <laughs> and then the tank, it was on its high side. You know, if it's a rectangle, it was on the, it was eight feet up. Okay. And Jerry had to jump out of the way. And then it went down the bank, way down, 200 and some feet down the bank and landed in the water. Wow. And landed right side up. It lost its lid. Um, but it didn't fill with water because it landed the right way and it didn't break. And poor Jerry LaPalm, my friend who's now not with us, and Tim scrambled down the um, bank to try and like catch this huge big boat. I mean, it's like 10 feet long and four or five feet high and about three feet deep. Like it's this huge thing and it's floating. And Jerry LaPalm rushes off I'm just standing there with my mouth open because I've just driven up. And Jerry jumps into his car. He races down to find Derek Maslink because he'd seen that Derek had a rowboat. Derek is home. The rowboat's there. So Derek heads out rowing toward my big white floating tank. Meantime, Tim scrambled down the bank and trying to put rope on it. And then Jerry rubs, you can tell he's thinking, then he rushes off. And later I heard that he stole Mike Burdett's flatbed truck. And just because he didn't steal it, they were very good friends and he was working with Mike, but he took it. And Ann Burdett reported that she looked out the window and Mike was in the bathroom or something. And there was the truck driving away. So anyway, Tim and, and Derek put this big rope around the tank, not broken, wheeled it over to Hope Bay took off the side of the wharf, got the big winch, winched the thing up. Jerry drove up with the flatbed truck, put the tank back on, 
And they did this really fast because a major storm was coming. And within one hour, my tank was back in my driveway. Wow. <laughs> so that's my helping people helping me out story. There's men of action <laughs> to get it done. How about that? Well, there was a storm coming. Yeah. Well, and the storm the storm actually hit, right? Yes, yeah, it did. Wow. Come. Okay. Well, geez. As far as I remember. Sure. No doubt. Well, that's that's incredible. That's an incredible <laughs> story, actually. I'm just trying to imagine so it was a two hundred foot drop, you said? Well, now somebody's gonna correct me on it, but I'm pretty high up there. I'm the second one on the water from the whole base store. Let's, it's a hundred at least. It's very rocky. It's let's went call down it 300. a very all oh, right. That's okay. not really. but it's very <laughs> rocky. And the fact that it didn't get stopped by a tree that it didn't break. Um, like, I've never been down that bank. No, no, it's a steep bank. You wouldn't walk down it without ropes or something like that. It's not a bank anyone climbs down. It's high. Okay. <laughs> Just to touch back in, because you mentioned the, uh, Yvonne McKenzie, and, and you said that she was your link to other women on the island, you said. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, so I guess she was... Your your connector on the island. Yeah. And women gathered. Women gathered then a lot. There were always circles and there was lots happening, it seemed to me. Yeah. Quite a, quite a lot of women my age um, would gather regularly for not just ceremonies, but um, like the different moons and the goddesses and different things like that. But also they had women's groups and dinners and yeah. Is is that culture still vibrant on the island? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's just grown, you know, just changed. I don't know. I bet maybe young women gather, like we were young, right? Women, I connect with people deeply on this island. Um, maybe not like in a as planned a way as some of the gatherings, and maybe there aren't as many, but um, I know the connections are there. I mean, even look at spirit moves, which I just wish I would go to. Now, that's men and women, you know, that they're young and old that dance at the hall. That's been going for a long, long time, you know. And and she wouldn't connect me just to the women's. It would be the dance that was happening or the band that was happening, you know, uh, as well. And also then I knew David McKenzie and, you know, all those friends. And, yeah. That's great. So, Yvonne, Yvonne was your... Um... Your best bud? Yeah, we were really good friends when our, especially when, because we raised our boys together, you see. The best buds are the boys. And Jordan is really bonded to Pender because of Morgan Dudley. And then you go to Gary Dudley and Shannon. And like that's like a circle for him as well as, you know, Yvonne and, um, you know, Manly LaRoche and connecting him to Steve. And so Jordan's really connected and Yvonne help that happen by having Morgan, you see. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It, the yeah. connection of two mothers with uh, sons basically the same age, a month yeah. apart, you said. Yeah. 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 So what are you into? What are you very passionate about right now in your life, would you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's, I mean, it, I hope it doesn't kind of sound cliche, but, you know, most of my life I was focusing, I think, on my psychological development and, kind of rounding me out my you know my spiritual development is pretty key for me i've been studying metaphysical principles and metaphysics you know most of my adult life but it's really i've had time see i'm retired 6 years so i have time to 
explore other dimensions, energy, and I'm traveling and I'm putting the two together quite a bit. How so? Well, I'm, I decided this morning to go to New York. Hey! <laughs> I'm going to New York and uh, I was going to go to Haida Gwaii. Not funny. I've been to Haida Gwaii. I love Haida Gwaii more than anything. But anyway, this morning, because person I've studied with a lot, Thomas Hubel, has a Celebrate Life Festival. And he's had it, he and his team, for over a decade in Germany. But um, this is the first one in North America. And his student base has just been established in the last, say, I've been studying with him maybe six years, seven years, about a decade he's been in North America. So we're going to the Omega Institute and having uh, five days of and lots of young people. There'll probably be a thousand people there or so. And it'll be lots of dancing and teaching and meditating and playing and celebrating life. And when I go, I'm meeting a woman that was part of a sangha that I meet with on Zoom and have for four years. So we know each other really well. And she lives in New Jersey. So I'm going to stay on with her. And I've never been to New York. Wow. So I'm going to rent a little, I'm going to stay at a hostel, I think. At the end of it, for four or five days, just downtown. Fun. And you said you met a woman through a, a Zanga, you said? Oh, a Sangha. Sangha. Yeah, so Sangha is, Thomas Hubel says the next spirit, and more than that, I think I think the Dalai Lama's even said it. Quite a few people have said that the Sangha, which is the community, it's kind of what Yvonne interest, introduced me to, you know, in the 70s or the 80s. A Sangha is a gathering of people that are just peers, and together they help each other love and grow. And so it's not a one-person show anymore. People that have been teaching us have been encouraging us to go out and create our community together and to practice and learn and grow and teach each other. I belong to a group, and we meet in Victoria Um, I think, did I mention the West Coast Evolutionaries were called? And we meet twice a year. Some of the people that live in Victoria area, but we're from all over BC. It's about, I don't know how many people, 50 or so. I've only met 20 at a time. And we, where my experience with them is we gather as a Sangha, no leader. Um, we gather twice a year at Swanwick, which is in Machosan, beautiful retreat space. And we create it. Some people just volunteer to lead it up that retreat. And mostly what we're working with is emergence. So we've gone beyond where I was a faculty member, um, where I made plans of what I was going to do. Mostly we try now to have plans where what happens between us emerges in the present moment, in the space. So it's very alive. Like this woman I'm meeting with, so we've been meeting in Sangha through Zoom, her and I, one other. I hardly really know anything about the story of her life, which would be, I'm going to learn because we'll have some casual conversation. But usually we're intentionally trying to touch our essence, expand our our awareness of all. I mean, we're so much more than this physical self, although the physical self is just a miracle. And it's actually here to teach us how to hold so much of more of what's really going on and touch the other dimensions. So the body's marvelous, but it's not 
what we see in our five senses. And everyone knows this, I think, that there's so much more than that. So we're playing with touching that. And it's really alive. And it's like a full-time job. The cliche of, I don't know how I ever had time to work. And I worked often 50 hours a week, you know. That's very true. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because it is these these uh, ideas are a little bit difficult to uh, put words to uh, sometimes. But thank you for sharing that because I think that it is really important to be able to uh, tap into something beyond the five senses. Because I agree with you, I think a lot of people do feel that uh, there's more to what's going on with existence than what we're led to believe. And I think some of the most powerful, poignant moments of people's lives are the unexplained or the miraculous or the otherworldly. And those are the stories that uh, give people the shivers and and the stories that people remember the most in their lives and the stories that uh, unfortunately sometimes for some people they are the most reluctant to share so mm. thank you for sharing um what you're working with a little bit there and uh i'm sure we'll talk more about that in uh, the coming months together but we're just coming up uh near the end of our time here so i just wanted to uh throw it out to you to the uh the last word if there's anything that you wanted to uh, say or touch on or anything that you want to mention the floor is yours hmm no, really, I just want to say that what you just said was beautiful. It was really a lovely summary of what I was trying to stumble around talking about just before it. I really appreciated it. And no, I love Pender Island. You know, I love going into the grocery store and I get so many connections. I can go home and be alone for days and days because I was so fed by the young people and the old people and the middle people and the men and the women, you know, that speak to me when I'm there. It's, you know, uh, we live in such a rich community. And uh, I've heard other people besides me say that. I've actually, you know, heard young people standing around saying, this is such a cool place. So we are blessed to be here. And uh, I'm really grateful for it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jewel. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Well, there you go. How about Jewel? She's so sweet. And to honor that interview, I decided to come down to Hope Bay. So Hope Bay is located on the North Island, and it has some shops here with a restaurant, a realty place, and there's a dock with a few boats here. It faces out to the northeast, looking out over towards... Main Island, and I can see Saturna to my right, and there's the slightest little bit of drizzle right now on a spring Sunday afternoon. And right now I'm just sitting down close by the water where I see a, a goose, and there's a blue heron that is just flying away right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's beautiful. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Until next time.